It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grand is the Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grand Dr. Grand Dr. Doreen Grand Dr. Doreen Grand is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Ask Dr. Doreen on the Autism Network. I'm Shannon Penrod and I'm here with the fabulous and stunning Dr. Doreen Grampichet. Good, Good morning and welcome. Thank you very much. Good uh, morning. If this is your first time watching and you don't know Dr. Doreen, let me fill you in that she is a true expert in the field of autism. She's been working in this field for more than 40 years with great success. There are so many of us that feel that we owe really our lives and our children's lives to her, myself included. Uh, and she is here once a week. She donates this hour to answer questions that you guys write in from all over the world. The other thing that I always like to tell uh, about you is that you, I, I say in the beginning that you're a visionary and I believe that that's true. But not just a visionary, someone who's a compassionate visionary, that you're always looking at individuals as individuals. So many Thank people you. take a big paintbrush and go autism and assume that everybody is the same. And you not only look at each individual on the spectrum as an individual and what their needs are, but you also look at the people who are the supporting actors around that individual sure. and, and are concerned about all of them and what they need to be able to support this individual. So thank yeah. you. Thank you. And and that's so important to do that, to make sure the whole family system is, is okay. Yes, yes. Yeah. But a lot of people focus on different parts. I don't I don't hear enough people following in your tiny little shoes <laughs> <laughs> just to like put it all together and look at that person as an individual with individual needs and how can we set them up for success by helping with their family unit to make right, that happen. Right. But you've been doing that for more than 40 years. Thank God. Thank, Thank you. Yes, uh, because my family greatly benefited from that. And now you guys can too because you can write in your questions right now. We're live right now on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and about a dozen other sites. Our, our really remarkable Traven is going to show you some of the places that you can connect with us any second now. Uh, I do want to say, because sometimes people write and go, is this live or whatever? Yes. So this is the morning of, it's Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. I keep getting the year, I like I'm like, too. is it 22, is I've it 23, said, or are we 21? I've 2013 multiple places. <laughs> I, I bought something and they put 2013 on there because that's what I said. Isn't oh my gosh, yeah. No, it's 2023, that yeah. still doesn't roll, and it's the last day of January. Welcome February. I, I Thank God. Yeah, can we shove January into I, the ocean? I'm telling you, like, I'm <laughs> with you there completely. <laughs> January is like so long and so brutal. I have no right to say that because we live in California, but it's been cold, and our houses it's aren't true. built for cold, and I can't handle it. I moved away from the cold because I can't handle <laughs> it. Uh, yes, I am a wuss. I'm officially a <laughs> wuss, but I cannot handle it. Um, 
So anyway, and, and because of that, we have forced heat everywhere. And so, yes, and it's warm in the studio this morning. So if you see me start to fan myself, uh, it's not this just menopause, it's menopause plus. Okay, so keeping it real. We're here for this hour to answer your questions. I also want to say, and Trayvon is showing you all the places that you can watch or listen. This show is available as a podcast as well. If you are just tuning in or you've been watching and, and you're like, oh, I wish I knew what Dr. Grampy-Shea had to say about this, it's really easy. You can look back at 12 years of what Dr. Grampy Shea has had to say about everything. You either can go on our YouTube channel and go to the Ask Dr. Doreen playlist. And at the start of all of the videos, it shows you what the question is. And you can click on it and fast forward to exactly that question. Or you can go on our website, mm -hmm. autismnetwork.com, and go to Ask Dr. Doreen in Topics and just type in whichever topic you want and it will show you all the questions that she has answered on that topic. So you can get super duper specific. So I hope that you will do that. Please remember to like, share, uh, review, tell other friends uh, because we appreciate that. Also wanna let you know we have a Patreon account now for Autism Network That's if you great. wanna keep the show going and you're going to start when you're on YouTube and other places you're going to start to see more ads because we need to keep the lights on so please uh, patronize us and skip when you want to skip watch when you want to watch do what what you want to do but know that that's so that we can bring this information to you for free that's how we're we're keeping the lights on so uh, we always have a topic now for yes, Ask Dr. Yes. Doreen that we start with a topic and a question to kind of kick things off. But we'll take questions on any subject once we uh, address that uh, topic. So today's topic is what is the difference between autism and intellectual disability? Because, Dr. Doreen, so often people still, 2023, and people mm -hmm. are still making the assumption that one means the other, right? and it doesn't. So yeah. talk to us a little bit about this. So they are completely different and not related. <laughs> so let's just start there. <laughs> um, intellectual disability just means that there is, the individual has a lower than average IQ or intelligence quotient. Um, and the way that you measure that is through IQ testing. And uh, there are a number of different types of IQ tests, and uh, so viewers will be familiar with the names of some of these. Uh, the Stanford Binet is one that goes across multiple ages. The Wexler tests, which are uh, very well known, and there are multiple different ones. Uh, if you are a, I believe, between the ages of two and six, then you're given a, a Wexler test called the WIPSI, which stands for Wexler. It uh, sounds like a, like a lawn sprayer for your kids. Exactly. To, the WIPSI. The WIPSI. <laughs> right. That's for two to six. And then the next one is the WISC, for, which is like from, I think, six to, I'm not sure, 11 or something. And then the next one is, or, or maybe even 6 to 16, and then the next one is the WACE, which is for adults. And um, these are all Wexler IQ tests. And, and then there are also nonverbal IQ tests, like the Merrill Palmer or the Lighter R. And in essence, these tests are supposed to be measuring cognitive ability or int intelligence, right? And uh, in order to actually receive a diagnosis of intellectual disability, you have to, ha and, and 
So their intellectual disability means that you are below average IQ, and how far below uh, establishes the level of intellectual disability. So average IQ, most of us, have an IQ of about 100. And the way that IQ is, is measured is it's a fraction, and it's your uh, mental age divided by your chronological age times 100. That's how you get IQ. So if your mental age is, is let's say, you know, my mental age would be 60, and my chronological age is 60. 60 divided by 60 is 1 times 100 equals 100. So my average IQ is 100. Mm -hmm. And most of us, that means that your mental age, your cognitive abilities have increased every year that you have aged or have become, you know, they've grown at the same level, let's put it that way. And so your average IQ is always 100. Now, because there's a big difference in people, uh, there's this thing called a standard deviation, which means that like 98.9% of people will be within 15 points of that 100, mm -hmm. okay? So most people will be like one standard deviation below or one standard deviation above. So they'll either be 85 or 115. So somewhere between 85 and 115 are most people, mm -hmm. okay? But there are some people who are below that even yeah. more or above that even more. So that would be someone who is two standard deviations below, so their IQ is around 70, mm -hmm. or two standard deviations above, so their IQ is 130. Mm -hmm. And if you're two standard deviations above, you're highly intelligent and that's you know gifted. Yeah. And if you're two or more standard deviations below, then you have intellectual disability. And as I said, they all they go by different levels. So there's like borderline intellectual disability all the way to profound intellectual disability, and there's multiple levels. Now, so that's kind of how you measure ID, intellectual disability. Okay. Um, which, you know, in the old days used to be called mental retardation. It's the same basic concept. Right. Now, let's put that aside for a minute, and that could, that could apply to just anyone whose intelligence or intelligence uh, quotient is below average. Okay. Now, autism has absolutely nothing to do with that. Autism is, is diagnosed completely differently. You do not do a test of intellectual ability for a diagnosis of autism. You're looking at completely different areas for autism. With autism, you're looking at two areas. One area of functioning is called social communication, and the other area is just repetitive, stereotypical behaviors. So in the social communication area, you're, you're essentially asking about and observing specific uh, symptoms. Like, for instance, the individual doesn't give good eye contact. The individual uh, does not have vocal communication. The individual doesn't know how to interact socially with other people. Those types of things. And you have to have a certain number of symptoms in that area. And in the second part, which is the kind of stereotypical repetitive behaviors, you have uh, things that are like, and many people who have a child with autism will recognize these, and they're very different, right? The stereotypies can be anything from uh, lining up objects to, you know, uh, repetitive uh, repetition of a vocal sound to uh, visual gazing, 
to uh, the need to touch textures. I mean, there's a bunch of different behaviors, Shannon, that we all yeah. refer to as self-stimulatory behaviors or stereotypy. Um, even the sensory stuff falls into this category now, having sensory dysregulation. And so if you have those two areas are affected in the child, so you have, you know, some uh, issues with social communication and some issues with those kind of stereotypical behaviors, if you have enough symptoms together, then you will get a diagnosis of autism now or autistic disorder. Now, you could also have a diagnosis of uh, intellectual disability, but it is a completely separate thing. And the problem is that when you have a deficit with social communication, when you have difficulty understanding language, and, and remember, with ID, you have to do that te those tests. Right, right. And most of those tests, the, the Wexler test and the Stanford-Binet test, the most worldwide recognized tests are verbal in nature. So they ask questions or they tell you to do things using language. So, you know, put this there or, you know, imitate this or re reproduce this pattern or what is this or those types of things. And if you have a deficit in language, if your language is delayed, which as we know in autism, many children due to their sensory issues, their language is delayed. And so then you will have a very hard time understanding what you're supposed to do or what is being requested of you. So it becomes almost very, very difficult to measure your raw intelligence. It's kind of like taking a nonverbal child and giving them an, an eye exam. Yeah. If they don't know how, what you're asking, they're not going to be able to respond to you, so you won't know if they're actually seeing those things, right? Yeah. So that's the problem. So therefore, a lot of people assume because kids with autism will actually do worse on IQ tests so because they're not understanding what's being asked of them. They have attention issues, all these other things that are interfering with the examiner's ability to actually measure the raw IQ. So a lot of people assume that kids with autism will have low IQ or intellectual disability. And I've had cases where uh, a regular IQ test uh, will actually show like an IQ of, I don't know, 70 or 65. And then when you give the child under very good circumstances a nonverbal IQ test, like a test that is designed for deaf children, yeah. and the child is able to attend, then there's like a 30-point difference, right. and the child is actually responding with normal IQ levels, right? Yeah. And that's super important. I always tell people to pay attention to that because, you know, and I'm rambling now, but... No. There's a lot of stuff that goes with, you know, when you have a child with autism, you have to continue to try and uh, teach them as many skills, or at least I believe you want to teach them as many skills as you possibly can so that they thrive in society, so that they are able to use their own skills and the ones that you taught them to do really well in life. And if you have a diagnosis of ID, a lot of times people just kind of give up. Yeah. And they assume that your child is not able to learn and they make excuses and all that sort of stuff. And then, you, and honestly, if you make an assumption that someone is not able to learn and you don't attempt to teach them things that are important and adaptive and functional for them, they won't learn. There's nothing for them to do and they will fall behind in society. 
And so that, to me, is very important to differentiate. It's a really important thing for those on the spectrum. I think you've really hit on something really important because I think for a lot of autism parents, we struggle with the idea of when am I pushing them too far? Yeah. Like, am I asking them to learn something that they're not capable of right, learning? Right, right. And, and I think that's where the giving up comes from. Right. But I know many parents whose children were diagnosed as ID along with autism, and the school parked them in yeah. a classroom where they were going to play with crayons for the next 10 years. Yep. And then later on, somebody just inadvertently you know, talks about something with the child, not knowing this preconceived notion of apparently they're not capable of that. Right. And then we see this ability flourish in this child and the parents go, oh my gosh, what did I just do? Yeah. That I let them be parked for 10 years. It's hard, but I, I, a couple of things I heard you say is that if we are having our kids on the spectrum mm -hmm. uh, do a IQ test and our kids are nonverbal, we should ask for them to have a nonverbal test. Yes. And, and that doesn't always work, too. Okay. And that, I mean, it does, a lot of times it works, but sometimes it doesn't just because our kids have a lot of visual input issues, auditory input issues, and also... Um, Distractibility, yes. right? So they can't pay attention. And just the visual input stuff itself is so important. Like, yeah. you know, I, so many of my kids, the very first thing I notice is that their eye contact is fleeting, right? So they're like, they're visual, they're just, it's as if the whole time they're trying to establish the, the box around them, yeah. right? So their eye contact is everywhere. And when you're, when you're doing that, it's very, very hard to focus on some one visual yeah. thing in front of you. I mean, I know Temple talks about the visual field yes. a lot. And that is, I think, vital to how they learn and yeah. how they understand. And so a lot of these nonverbal IQ tests have a very big visual function, right? Yeah. You're able, you have to pay attention to things that you see. Okay, so maybe the takeaway is that especially when our children are young, that we should not be tied to whatever the result is. If our kids are on the spectrum, don't be tied to what the IQ tests are. Push for our kids to be able to learn. Absolutely. Now, on the flip, though, I, I do have people that I know who wholeheartedly listen to that and go, okay, they told me my child had autism and an intellectual disability, and I reject that. Mm -hmm. And we're going to push, we're going to do as much as possible, but now the kids are older, and it, be, it has become evident that... We're, the progress is not there. Yes. And they don't want to let go of it. Yeah. That's also very hard because, you know, it's almost like you're pushing the child too far. And it's also very difficult for the child because they are experiencing failure. Yeah. And it's also very, very hard for the family unit, right? Because it's disappointing every yeah. day. So, yeah, we have to have a very realistic point of view and that's very difficult to do on when, when it's our own child yeah. and and from my perspective iq does at some point it becomes interesting and important it teaches you a lot about the child yeah but i think that initially like when, a lot of people when they first get the diagnosis i'm not at that point i'm not too concerned about getting an iq score right away okay. For me, in the beginning, the first year, like assuming the child is around three, the first year should be kind of a year where you're learning about the child's learning style and you're getting to see how rapidly the child can learn. And so as a clinician, 
BCBAs should be kind of experimenting and making sure that the child is progressing all the time. And if they're not progressing, you have to change what you're doing. So, like, this is, as you know, Shannon, like, one of the things we used to do is we often would just change things around and identify, wait, is he having a hard time because the stimuli that I'm using are too small, too far, uh, too confusing, yeah. or should I be using more visuals, more verbals? You know, we change the modality of how we're teaching, and we never assume that it's because of the child. We assume that it's because of the style of therapy or the way that I'm teaching. And you do that a lot for the first year because then you learn, okay, there is a way to teach. Now, that being said, I remember I used to have a child, a little boy. We did so many different things with him to try to get him to pay attention and, and learn. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it wasn't until we realized he actually had very significant hearing deficits, mm. right? And it was very, very hard for him to learn. And so you always have to think of all these different things. You know, is his hearing intact? Yeah. Is the vision, and it's not just standard vision, it's all these aspects of our visual ability, like being able to, binocularity, you know, being mm -hmm. able to focus both eyes yeah. uh, on the same stimulus, being able to track. Yes. Being able to do figure ground discrimination. These are things we do and we don't even realize it. Yeah. And our kids have a very hard time with some of these things, both from a visual perspective and auditory. Sometimes I was our just kids, gonna say auditory. They, exactly. They can't determine what is being said because background noise is too loud. Yeah. These types of things are super important before we make any conclusions about their intellectual abilities. Yeah, I the English language is such a tough language to hear, and we have so many diphthongs and triphthongs, and, and th there's a whole section, in fact, in skills that, in a very interesting place, where it, it teaches about auditory discrimination to be able to discriminate which, what a diphthong is and what a triphthong is, so that you can hear the sounds yeah. to be able to understand what somebody is saying. And we've seen a couple of different cases of especially nonverbal women mm -hmm. who get to a certain age and then now are able to to do it and Depression. have said like Carly Fleischman said I wasn't able to I wasn't able to decode what you were saying until she was like 12 amazing isn't that amazing, amazing. so interesting um, well what but I guess my last question is, so IQ can change, because we were told for oh, yeah, decades very that, it, that it could not. Yes. So, actually, I remember when I was working with Lovas, you know, at UCLA years and years ago, he did have, he had written about this, and he called it the malleability of IQ, mm. because IQ does change, obviously, because it's funny, when you do a, the very first time, if, if anyone who is a psychologist or has been tested for IQ, you know that if you just memorize vocabulary, <laughs> your IQ score will go up. Because the tests, those IQ tests, are assuming that you're not specifically sitting there and prepping for an IQ test, mm. you know? And so, but very truthfully, if you have higher vocabulary, you're going to score higher IQ. So it's very easy things like that that you can. So at, over time, if a child is learning more, which... Obviously, let's say you're in an intensive ABA program, your child's going to be learning more. So the IQ test will change. 
And obviously, as you know, I mean, I've, I've published a paper on this where we had children who at the beginning of, of intervention, their IQ was in the 60s or 70s. Mm -hmm. We did two or three years of intervention and their IQs went into the 100 range. Oh, yeah. And so that's a very important distinction as well. That was our case. You know, the first time that, uh, that our son was tested, they came back and said we couldn't get a score. We couldn't, right. We, we, right. He didn't have enough language for us to test him. And then the next time, I remember, it was within the range where we were concerned about was there going to be intellectual disability. And then the year after that, his, was his score was so high. Yep. And I, was, and I remember being disappointed. It was like a 139 or a mm -hmm. 140. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was disappointed. And the, the person who was giving me the results said, I don't understand why you're not excited. And I said, oh, I, I, well, I really wanted him to be in Mensa. And Mensa, it has to be 150. <laughs> 140. Yeah. And she was like, no, in this test, the highest score is like a 142, something yeah. like that. Yeah. I don't remember what the numbers were. And I was like, oh, yeah. oh, okay. But uh, she was like, you should be happy. Yeah. You should be thrilled. Yeah. And I am. Uh, and that's not everybody's story, and I have to cling to that. Uh, okay, so, uh, but we did have somebody write in a question that had to do with this. Melissa, and by the way, I'm saying hi to Amna and to Susie. Melissa has written in and said, my grandson was diagnosed with autism around 18 months old. They said he would never speak. He will be four years old next week, and not only does he speak, we just discovered that he can read. Uh, should we have him retested? I believe that he has hyperlexia too. Yeah. So I love that um, question and <clears throat> congratulations. I love it when you suddenly discover that a child has taught themselves to read. It's so beautiful that moment. Um, hyperlexia is great. Yes, you should have him retested. Um, and I mean, every, I, honestly, guys, I think that it's not a bad idea to have some form of retesting done annually. Um, and I know it's a lot. Will insurance pay for that now? I don't know. I literally don't know. It depends on the testing. Okay. So, for instance, insurance may not... T it, okay. It depends on the diagnosis. So let's okay. start there. So, if you have a diagnosis of autism, yes, you should be able to get um, autism diagnostic testing every year and insurance will pay for it. Okay. Um, if you have a diagnosis of intellectual disability, you should be able to get in, um, uh, IQ testing every year. It depends because what the whole purpose is, we're trying to show if you, that diagnosis still applies or if you've kind of overcome it, right? And so that is really important. But now I, hyperlexia, the ability to, um, the advanced ability to uh, decipher letters and be able to read is ha, has somewhat of a correlation with autism. There are children who do have hyperlexia, and I love it because I have found that kids, and there's published material on this, that kids who have hyperlexia actually tend to do very, very well. Mm -hmm. um, they tend, they have a higher tendency to lose the diagnosis of autism just because now they have a kind of third way, I guess, of learning. One way being just visual iconics, just like pictures, mm -hmm. and second one being auditory. And now they're reading. And so when they are, let's say, have a difficult time with um, social communication, a lot of times we, we can give them 
the, what they are supposed to be responding and what they're supposed to be asking, we can teach that to them in the form of writing. They can now read books that will advance them faster. They will be able to, they generally tend to go faster, yeah. right? And so it's wonderful and it, it's a really nice thing and I think it will help his auditory, uh, it will help his vocal. And so, yeah, I would, I would get him retested and I, why don't you just have him, uh, have them test for his IQ, have them test for diagnostic, and, you know, the tests that I think are important, and this is not just for this little child, but for all kids, um, are the tests that specifically measure the areas that we feel need help. So if your child is delayed in language, I'd be doing language testing every year. If your child has motor skill deficits, I would be doing those types of tests every year because I want to see what is going on, right? And if your child's having a hard time, oh, well, two, two, like if your child's having a really hard time uh, just learning, I would do some neuropsych testing, and also that would apply also to kids who are, who've done very well, but they're caught on like the abstract stuff. Neuropsych testing gives us a lot of information about things like how your child memorizes, how your child. Uh, you know, patterns his universe, like what types of patterns does he learn, um, what are difficult things for him, what are easy things for him, and so on. Is it, I also feel like when we talk about kids who have hyperlexia, it seems like from hearing you talk about this for years that I, I always want to say for those kids, we want to make sure that we're keeping them with enough stuff so that they're not bored and that they're stimulated because I feel like the kids who get that level uh, they have a place to take all that energy and drive it, and if they don't, that they have problems with anxiety later on. Is that, like, well, I mean, accurate? I don't know that, not necessarily anxiety, okay. but I would say for all of our kids, and I'm really glad you brought that up, because it's not just not uh, hyperlexic kids. It's also just, you know, you have kids with autism who have other special skills. Yeah. And I'm not talking about the kids who are geniuses and the like savants, yeah. the savants. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying a lot of our kids have other skills that no one really taps into until later, as you mentioned. Yeah. So some of our kids have an incredible visual artistic ability. Mm -hmm. Some of our kids have an unbelievable musical abil ability. Some of our kids are extremely strong with memorizing facts. Others are extremely strong with like particular topics like geography mm -hmm. or so on and so forth. So everybody has their own skill. And unless you feed that, I find that they, there's a boredom factor. Yeah. And especially with kids who are hyperlexic or intellectually advanced, they do get bored. And when you get bored, you will, anyone, once you get bored, once you're not stimulated enough, you'll start to try to fill your boredom with something. And that something is not always adaptive. Yeah. So a lot of times our kids might do repetitive types of behaviors simply because everything else in their environment is kind of boring and too slow. So yeah. that's really important to pay attention to stimulate. That's why when, when a child first comes to me, I will always tell the parents, okay, we've identified all the, the areas of deficit that we need to work on to try to teach them to come into the average level. But what are the areas of strength? And let's look at those as well, because those are not only important to also feed, but they are the reinforcers. We all enjoy doing things we're good at. 
And if we don't, if we don't feed that in our kids, they're just not getting enough reward from their lives. There you go. Okay, uh, we're saying hi to Judy too and to Shanice. Shanice has written in and said, how to manage separation anxiety. My son just started daycare two days ago oh. and he's having major meltdowns. I want to know how Shanice is doing because yeah. the first two days that you send your child oh to any gosh. place is hard for you and if they're not happy to skip away from you, it's that much harder. So hard. I want to know if you're like laying in your car with binoculars to see what's so happening. So hard. Oh my like, God. Like I many of us threatened to do, right? It's hard. That's it's a hard very, time. It's very, very hard. It's very, very hard. And you know, it's not a bad thing, I'll be honest. Separation anxiety, I mean, ha- it, the positive way to look at it is that he has a very strong bond with you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you have to ask the, the teachers to kind of uh, meet with you and uh, to do this very gradually. First of all, you unfortunately can't really be part of it. I think you have to have good teachers who are willing to uh, engage and entertain and make your child feel safe. Uh, you know, you can, for instance, talk to them and see if they are willing to uh, take some object of yours that will help the child know that, you know, you're coming back. Like, for instance, the whole thing with separation anxiety, by the way, is that our kids don't know when you're coming back. And uh, they are very much afraid of you never coming back, right? So uh, you can do it in pieces. Like, you can take the child, leave them for 15 minutes, and then come back, uh, and then gradually make that 30 Mm -hmm. minutes, an hour, etc. This will take a long time. Mm -hmm. Or you can flood the child, which means you leave them for the first day, the second day, it takes a few days, but the individuals there have to be willing to console, uh, you know, stay close, hold his hand, have contact, do fun things that are distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do, they have to do that for a while until he, he, the fear has subsided and now he's able to actually pay attention to some of the things that are going on around him and then he will begin to enjoy but I wouldn't, you know, and, and for you, Shannon, is so right. Like, one of the things that's very important, and these days we have so many cameras that can help with this type of thing. Like, for you, I would suggest that you actually, like, maybe get their permission and get, like, a ring camera and put it inside there so you can actually see what is going on. You can see and hear what is going on all day long, mm-hmm. and you just want to make sure that they are doing everything they can because... They, nobody should be ignoring a child who's having a meltdown due to separation anxiety. They should be engaging him, keeping him very busy, and so on. And sometimes at daycare, that doesn't happen because mm-hmm. they're busy doing other things. Yeah. So if that is the case, and if he's just not getting the amount of support and attention, then I would take it slow. And I would do, you know, increase it by very short increments so that your child gradually gets used to it. I want everybody to hear what you just said, that no one should ignore a child who yeah. is going through a meltdown because of separation anxiety. Absolutely. I My don't God. think people know that. No, that's uh, very, very important. Like, they, they should really be paying attention to this. This is not, you know, the function of this behavior is not to uh, get them to, you know, get attention from them. It's right. fear. They're, they're very, very much feeling afraid 
and so they should be attended to. But you know that there's a lot of people who think the extinction thing is Works always across attention. The board, yeah. That it's always attention, yeah. and so you always ignore, and they think ignoring the child. It makes me insane. Yeah. Because uh, it, uh, you know why it makes me insane? Because it took me so long to learn what it really was. Yeah. And that it wasn't ignoring a child, it was ignoring a behavior. Right. Which is different than ignoring a child. Absolutely. And that you only ignored a behavior if the behavior, if the goal of the behavior was to get attention. Yeah. That took me two years, two yeah. solid years, because I was like, I don't get it. How come yeah. sometimes we ignore and sometimes we don't? But then when I got it, I was like, oh, everybody needs to get this, and yeah. so I'm impatient with people to get it. So what, we need to crochet that on a pillow. If a child is having a meltdown because of separation anxiety, don't you ignore. do not ignore them. Yeah. You give them more Definitely. support. Okay. Somebody wrote in and said, my son, uh, six, a male, I think, friend, seven male, is autistic. I'm not sure where he is on the spectrum. And he asks me nonstop questions when mm. he's at our house. It's overwhelming. One random question after the other. This is my new neighbor. He did this to me the other day. <laughs> and his two grown sons were, and he just kept asking me questions. And I said, you ask a lot of questions. questions yeah. And his sons roared. They were like, oh my gosh, he totally does. Um, but anyway, this person says, and I get really frustrated. How can I redirect the friend out of the question mode? Yeah, so the individual asking questions is on the spectrum. Well, first they say autistic, and then they say, I'm not sure where he is on the spectrum. So I think autistic. Yes. So uh, sometimes people with autism will ask a lot of questions because they are trying to interact. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that, generally speaking, in, in social communication, we ask a question, receive an answer, allow the other person to ask a question. There's like this kind of, uh, you know, it's not written down anywhere, but it's a, it, we all know to take turns. Mm. And um, that doesn't always happen. And they are curious and they're trying to interact. And so they will ask back-to-back questions. And so one, there are many different things you can do. One way to handle this is just simply when the individual comes in and starts to ask questions, you just uh, tell them right off the bat, how many questions are we going to do today? <laughs> yeah. Let's do three. Yeah. And then they're allowed to ask three questions. Just hold your fingers up and allow them and then say, okay, that's it. Now it's my turn and I will do that. Or you don't even have to say, now it's my turn if you don't want to interact. You'll say, now we're going to do five minutes of silence, you know, and set a timer. So it's not offensive to the end. A lot of times people don't say those things because they think they might be offending the person. You're not. You are teaching them the rules of social communication. And actually you're helping them in that sense because then they will take that rule and apply it to other scenarios. Yeah. And I love that, you know, you're, you're saying that it is their way of trying to communicate with you. I think there's something about when you understand that piece of it. Yes. I have a much beloved member of our family that the way they reach out and communicate with people to start is by asking questions like, when is your birthday or things like that? Because that is yes. what they have memorized to ask. And, yes. and it drives yes. me a little crazy that there are people in our family that, that don't go any further than that. 
Yes. Like they don't volley back, like they'll just answer the question and then they don't ask the child back a question. And I pointed that out recently. I said, you know, that's their way of trying to start a conversation right, with right, you. Right, right, And, and uh, you know, I think when you realize, oh, is that what's happening? Then, then you can come into the conversation a lot more effectively Absolutely. with them. Absolutely. And sometimes, and that's another really good point that you bring up, Shannon, is that sometimes it's not that they're asking a hundred different questions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they will ask the same question mm, over yes, and over. Yes. And that's, you know, also important to point out and say, nope, you already asked that. Yeah. And ask me a different question. And actually asking a different question is a whole lesson that we have written up. And I think a lot of times it's just important. Like I said, we don't specifically give these instructions or directions because we feel we might be embarrassing the other individual. Yeah. But the truth is that if you do actually give those rules, mm -hmm. often it helps. And sometimes you might need to write the rules down or sh show them with some form of visual. Like we are going to ask three questions. One, okay, I answer that. Two, okay, now it's my turn to ask a yeah. question. Those types of things. So it just depends why the individual is doing that. Often it's just because they're trying to communicate. You know, there is it the Vineland where you have to answer those horrible questions as a parent where you yeah. have to sit there? Oh, I hate that test. Um, but I remember in the beginning when we used to have to do the Vineland and it would say, you know, there was the one where it was, does your child, if you ask them a question, um, how many volleys back and forth? I don't remember how they worded it. How many exchanges, exchanges right. back and forth and how many words in a sentence? And I remember when the answer to all of it was not applicable because we didn't, there was nothing, uh -huh. right? And then gradually that got added. And, and, and it was like we almost started working our way down the sheet right. uh, with, with answers to things. And so there was a time when I remember a grandmother complaining to me about her four-year-old granddaughter. And she said, oh, gosh, she's four. And you know what that's like. You have a four-year-old. They just ask questions endlessly. And I went, oh, oh. how lovely. Because... <laughs> he wasn't asking questions, right? And all I wanted was for him to ask questions. Yeah. Then when he was like six, all of a sudden there were the questions endlessly. And a lot of times it was the same question. And I, and I had to remember, oh, I used to wish for this. But I remember the big one, we'd be driving in the car and he would say to me, what's for dinner? Yeah. And I would tell him, you know, and, and then be 10 seconds later and he'd say, mom, what's for dinner? Yeah. And you guys taught me to say, you know, I, I answered that. Asked and answered was what we eventually right, got right, to. I would say, right. answered that. What else do you want to ask me? And then, then you guys taught me, because sometimes I would, I would say back to him, because uh, we were working on memory, too, I would say, I just told you. Do you remember what I, would, what yes, I said? And he yes. would say, I forgot. Yes. So then what we started doing is he would ask me what's for dinner, and I would say chicken and mashed potatoes. And then I would wait a second and I would say, what did I just ask you? What, what, did, what did I just I tell, tell you was you? for dinner? And he would go, chicken and mashed potatoes. Exactly. So then when he would ask me, he would say, what's for dinner? And I would say, I don't know, you tell me. Yeah. And he would say, chicken and mashed potatoes. And then I would ask him a question or I would say to him, ask me a different question. Yes, yes. And then we got to the point where, because everybody always says, how do you get to conversation? But that was along that the was way. That was way, yeah. yeah. You know? And this is a very good thing you're talking about here because I often see that our kids, so this is another whole thing that could be happening with some of our kids. So they, you know, remember the whole concept of prompt dependence, right? Yes. And that 
sometimes our kids learn that they can depend on you to give mm -hmm. them the answer. Mm -hmm. And so when you give them an answer the first time, they don't really pay attention to it because mm -hmm. they can depend on you to give them the answer again. This is and my so, husband. Well, this is my husband. I mean, it's a lot of us, right? A lot <laughs> right. of people. And, and as time goes on, we also have learned to like kind of not pay attention. Like, you know, we're distracted. We're, there's a yes. million things that yes. distract us. So that becomes a really important thing to teach your child is that when I give you the answer the first time, you need to be really focused on paying attention on it, to it. And so the way that you did that is perfect, where you would give the answer and actually ask the child, what did I just say, so that they repeat it, so that they remember it. Or, I mean, a lot of times you'll just tell the child, and you can also say, now remember that. Mm. Or you can tell the child to write it down if they're hyperlexic. Or you can tell the child, you know, I'll, I'm going to ask you that question again, so remember. Like, you can give them ways to remember it. And they are, and that will really actually help the child in processing information. Because sometimes our kids will ask a question and they don't process the response that you've given to them. Yeah. And that is, then they keep asking over and over again because they kind of depend on you to prompt it. Yeah. So you have to teach the child to give themselves ways to keep it in, and this is a memory deficit, right? So you're allowing the child to, you're teaching the child to expand their memory by doing various things, either repeating it, writing it, uh, thinking about it, that sort of thing. Okay. I love this question. Hi, thank you for the great work that you're doing. How many minutes uh, one should give for teaching one skill in a four-hour session? How would you decide the kid has mastered the particular skill, and how long would you keep teaching that particular skill? Do you need to revise it? That's a very good Woo, question. A lot yeah. of questions there. Uh, it's also very hard for me to respond, unfortunately, because it depends on the difficulty level of the skill for the child. So if it is a, depends on a lot of stuff, I'm going to try to give you lots of information about this. So if it's a brand new skill that has never been introduced to the child before, mm -hmm. then you probably want to give a little bit more uh, time uh, let, me, let me back up and, and first talk about the actual way of teaching because there's so many different components to this. I don't want to mm -hmm. confuse people. So when we teach a new skill, we generally will give an instruction, and as you give the instruction, you will give whatever prompting is necessary. Prompting is kind of like a, a thing that will make it easier. So for instance, let's say um, I want you to touch... Uh, an object like touch phone and you're not doing that and I right. keep saying touch phone and you're not doing it so next time I say touch phone I actually touch it myself and that is a modeling prompt so I'm modeling for you what I want you to do or I'll point to it there's lots of different ways to prompt a response yeah. so when you do that you basically give an instruction and the prompt if you need to and you wait a specific period of time for the child to respond and then you reward it if the child responds correctly, okay? That specific amount of time is very important because people have different processing speeds. Some kids will respond immediately. Other kids will respond in approximately the amount of time you or I would respond. And yet other kids actually need a little bit longer to process. 
And that is not something you know right away. That's something you identify by getting to know that child's uh, sort of abilities. And you can generally get to know that within like a day or two of working with that child. So first, that's my first response is that every child has a different processing speed. Okay, now separate from that, every lesson has a different inter-trial interval. So if it's a very easy lesson, like touch your nose, okay, that's done. Um, that will be at a certain speed, whereas if I tell you to tell me what happened in school, I'm gonna give you more time, the response will take more time on its own anyway. And so the, 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 trial, the inter-trial interval, the period of time that it takes to do this lesson will take longer. And as we go into more and more complex lessons, so, you know, um, receptive lessons are generally easier, like put an object in a location, touch an object, give me an object, uh, point to an object, all those types of things are generally faster than uh, expressive responses. So lessons that require the child to say something will take a little bit longer because the child now has to think about Think about yourself when you're doing a, a foreign language. You will receive information a lot easier and faster than you will be able to produce it. So you generally have a longer period of re uh, repetition and time when it's an expressive type of lesson, okay? So that's another aspect of it. Um, some children will require repetitive introduction of a, a repetitive or repeat of, of an instruction multiple times, others will get it within three trials. So it's very, very different for each child and it really has a lot to do with how familiar they are with that particular concept or what you're asking them, as well as how good they are in receiving information in that modality. So some kids will do better when it's a visual skill. Some kids will do better when it's an auditory skill. It is so hard to answer this question. The, the other side of that is if you see a child um, getting bored because something is repeated so many times, then you have to move on. You have to get to another level. How do you tell? I guess it, and the, the person asking the question asked, What's the percentage correct or something? And that, again, differs. So for yeah. some children, you won't move forward unless they are at about 90% or 95% correct on something, only because in the past you've noticed that if you move forward faster, they start to confuse topics. On the other hand, with some kids, you move forward when they're at about 80 or 85% correct, because if you try to get to 90%, you've lost their attention. So it, it, these are things you learn by working with the child. Generally speaking, though, I wouldn't move past something unless it's at least 80% correct across two separate days and two separate people. So that's kind of important because um, sometimes a child will do really well with one person, not with another, and then that's either because the person is inadvertently prompting and no one's paying attention to it, or because the, the other person is not as good a teacher, <laughs> whatever it is. 
And sometimes um, they will be really paying attention today and not doing very well tomorrow, and that's important to know as well. So you want to have some level of consistency, so two days in a row, uh, two different people, and uh, at least 80% correct. There we go. And it's just hard. But, but with all that said, you always need to pay attention to giving the child new and interesting information, our kids have a very, you know, it's very easy to fall into repeating something too many times and getting the child to be bored. Yeah. Well, I, I, the part of the question that concerns me is, you know, how much time should you give teaching one skill in four hours? I just want to make sure that people oh, realize. that's important too. Let's yeah, talk about that. I, I think it's important for people to realize that you're not just going to sit and drill one, one skill, skill for right. four hours, even mm -hmm. an hour or even mm -hmm. 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, that's not what that's it right. is. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. So when you're teaching a child, you are um, never going to be working on one skill for hours. So you identify, this is why it's so important in the beginning to identify multiple areas that you need to focus on. Yeah. So let's say I do a bunch of testing with a child and I identify, okay, I'm going to start from the very beginning. Even when you start from the very beginning, there's going to be at least somewhere between, you know, 15 to 20 different lessons that you're focused on. So some lessons are going to be based on uh, increasing the child's language. For example, those could be receptive lessons, like let's say I want to teach the child body parts. Okay, I'm doing these receptively, so touch nose, touch eyes, touch this, touch that. And, I will, and then you're going to have multiple other lessons. You're going to have some, a vocal imitation lesson where the child is working on sound production. Uh, you know, say ah, say mmm, and so on. You're going to have another lesson which has to do with imitation. So do this, imitate this particular thing. You're going to have another lesson. So you're going to have multiple lessons, right? And each of those lessons are going to have what we call exemplars. And these exemplars are the specific item that you're teaching. So, for instance, we're talking about body um, parts. Touch nose is a different one than touch eyes, right? Or, uh, you know, touch head. And you will initially start with what we call a mass trial of one particular body part, right? So touch nose, let's say. Touch nose, touch nose. That's going to be on its own a mass trial. But you're not going to be repeating that for four hours or even an hour or even, as Shannon said, 15 minutes. All of these things are done in very, very, very small. That's why we do things like 10 trials. How long does it take to do a 10-trial set? Maybe 20 seconds, maybe 30 seconds. And then you do another 10-trial set of something else. And that's why the child is receiving different types of information, not the same thing for so many hours. If you're doing a four-hour session, which, by the way, is the longest session you should ever do anyway, um, generally sessions are something like two hours. And in that period of time, you're doing, uh, let's say, 15-minute segments, okay? And you do 15 minutes of work followed by about three to five minutes of play. Even that 15-minute segment is broken down into multiple little uh, lessons. And in between each of those, there's lots of reinforcers. Mm -hmm. So really, the only time that you're sitting and focusing on one thing is about a minute, maybe 30 seconds to a minute, followed by 
you know, some other type of thing, which is usually a reinforcing thing. Then you come back and do another minute of either the same thing or a different thing. And so there's not a lot, you know, people talk about repetition. Yeah. And the repetition is important for the purposes of learning, but too much repetition can definitely lead to the child ignoring. I really just want to make a video showing what a typical so session hard. looks like. So it's that so people, Because once yeah. you see it, you go, oh, yep. like it's so, ex like and you can describe it. And, like, but, and when you see it, you go, oh my gosh, these kids this are having sense. a ball and they're learning and they're having a good time. But that's and it's the, fast paced and absolutely. it's moving. Absolutely, it's fast paced and, and fun. And But that's why we tell people to always have about 15 to 20 lessons. Yes. Because you won't repeat. Yes. Yes. I want to say, Poker King, welcome back. We haven't seen you in a while. Uh, really quick question. He wants to know if sparkling water is good for you or just regular water. Um, Poker King has written to us before about drinking a lot of soda, and um, now he says he's lost a bunch of weight not drinking soda. Do you have a preference for I our don't. kids? I about honestly don't or? know. I mean, sparkling water generally is mineral water, so... Um, I now don't, they have all that seltzer that it isn't. They have all different kinds of seltzers it's flavored as well. And things. Yeah. Honestly, I have no idea. Maybe ask a nutritionist if they have an opinion on it. We love bubble water in our yeah. house. That's what we call it, bubble water in our house. But if you're gassy, yeah, you know, exactly. then there's that. Yeah. And someone else, did you see the question before that about zeolite? I did. I didn't know if we wanted to go there. I, I'm, not, I'm just not going to give an opinion on that because it's one of those things that I don't know enough about. It is for the purpose, it's supposed to be for detoxification. Um, and but it is it, from what I know it has silicon and, and, and aluminum. aluminum and I don't know I just don't know I wouldn't I, I'm one of those people that always wants to see a lot of research on something before yeah. I can say one way or another I, I, I mean I it sounds to me like it's a chelating agent and if you're going to do chelation I think you need to be under a doctor's care in my 100%, opinion I've seen 100%. kids get injured not doing that so yes, I'm just going to say that fortune fortune I want to get to their question hi doctor my daughter is four years old and one month four years and one month old ha was diagnosed with moderate to severe autism uh, towards the more severe side she's nonverbal one word, uh, kids with major tantrum and hitting, biting, she's not social. Should I focus on ABA 40 hours a week or should I do 30 hours of ABA with 10 hours a week of socializing with kids? She is ID smart, knew her ABCs before two, could write ABCs before three and up to 100 in numbers. She has great memory. Can she recover? Is four years old too late to start ABA and blessings? Okay, I would, and she's four year one month, I would do 40 hours of ABA, and I would not worry about social until she has a little bit more ability to communicate. Um, it's very, very hard. We expect our kids to socialize when they can't understand or express. So really focus on trying to get her language up. Uh, and remember, you have more than 40 hours of awake time. So even if you're doing 40 hours of ABA, you still have There's 10 hours. Lots of time to you socialize. You still have the 10 hours to expose her to other kids. But I would really focus on skill teaching right now more than anything else. And I would do that for the next year. And then you can start to just, in, you can certainly have her be around other kids, no question about it. But you'll see that good ABA is so vital and there's so much to learn that uh, you should be spending that time doing that. Four is not too late. It's good. It's you're fine. Don't worry. And um, the, she is tantruming, hitting, biting because 
She can't communicate. Most of the time, those types of behaviors are communication. The child is trying to say, don't, you know, leave me alone, give me something, I want that, I don't want that. They're expressing themselves through these behaviors. A good ABA person will teach them to use language instead of those behaviors, those challenging behaviors, and things will start to change. This is the time where you just need to really focus, and please don't be afraid or like uh, think, oh, time has passed or anything like that. You're doing the right thing. Get them into ABA, and you'll love the journey. Just do, stick with it. Do what she said, 40 hours. You won't be sorry. Judy, I love Judy's uh, thing. Dr. Doreen and Shan, thank you. Great advice and knowledge. Wish I could bring you both to my home <laughs> for my two autistic grandchildren. Love you both. Judy, tell me where you live. <laughs> I'm not promising anything, but tell me where you live. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. And yet, I know, and it just, I just so enjoy this. Uh, and I Thank hope you that so you guys much, do everyone. too. Thank you oh, such so a pleasure. much. I can't, honestly, I looked at our clock at I, like, I thought it was like 10, 15. And the next time I looked, it was like 10, 40. I, I know, it flew by, it flew by. Yeah. Um, I, we, uh, we were going to announce something today, but I didn't talk to you about it before. Oh, do we okay. want to announce it or not? I, I don't, don't have a name. I don't have a name for it yet. Uh, but what we're talking about doing in April, do we want to oh, reveal that now or sure. wait? Why not? Well, I just want to say to everybody, we've been talking about this for a couple of years, but we've decided to do it this April. We are going to do a 44-hour long live podcast. Marathon. We're, we're going to get on the air and we're going to stay on the air for 44 hours. Very excited. So um, it's going to start on April 4th and it will end on April 6th. I will be stupid tired by the end. But that's okay. Um, hopefully, I'll keep my language under control. I tend to swear more when I'm tired. We'll try not to do that. Um, but we're going to have lots of guests. Uh, so mark it down in your calendars. The 4th through the 6th of April, we're going to do something wild and crazy. And you're going to get more Ask Dr. Doreen than you've ever gotten before. She will not be on the whole 44 hours. No, but I'll be on a lot. And it's she exciting. Will be I'm on very a lot. excited about it. And we're going to have a lot of guest organizations coming in to help yeah. us to do the 44 hours. So you heard it here first. Well, you're going to be hearing much much more about it 44 hours live it's wild crazy and i'm scared but they say do the thing you're afraid of absolutely. right absolutely and if, if our viewers have particular guests or topics let us yes. know because we'll work on it yes we're we're making the schedule now so i uh, want to let you know that tomorrow we're here with uh somebody who's written a book recently uh that they're going to be talking about teaching reading comprehension oh wonderful which will wonderful. be wonderful so that's tomorrow. And then on Thursday, it's Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. Nancy also at Spa Jackson will be here. We've got a total of three great guests that are going to be here for you. We're going to have uh, somebody from an arts organization talking about the role of arts in autism. And, of course, I've drawn a complete and total blank on who the other two guests are. I'm, can you tell I'm getting old? I used to be able to steal trap, and I could remember all You'll of it. Tell them but I, I know it's, they're amazing. Oh, 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 no. You know what I know what it is? It's somebody who uh, is changing how we teach how to play with children, especially on the spectrum. Oh, So nice. we're going to love nice. that. That will be really good. And then Friday, of course, we have uh, Stories from the Spectrum. Great, great video. Uh, awesome. Especially one from a young man talking about teaching eye contact I from his it. point of view as an adult. It. So tune in for that. But we'll be back tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Grandpa Shea. Bye bye for now.